Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm talking to New York Times reporters Alex Burns and Jonathan Martin about their recent book, This Will Not Pass, a deep dive into the last few years of our politics from Trump's first term, the 2020 Democratic primaries, the Biden VP process, the general election, the chaotic aftermath, January 6th, and the first year plus of the Biden administration. The book has gotten a lot of coverage, deservedly so, for breaking new ground, much of which surrounds the January 6th riot. For the purposes of this discussion, I discussed some of the names and storylines that caught my eye in reading the book that they haven't talked about quite as much as they've made the rounds. And before this discussion, I wanted to say a word about a sponsor of this podcast, Political Wire. Com. Political Wire has been my go-to website for political news for years, even as I use sites like Twitter to aggregate a lot of my political news. I find myself specifically making a point to go to Political Wire on a daily basis. And there's a special deal for listeners of the Pro Politics podcast to get 10% off an annual membership to Political Wire. You'll get exclusive analysis, a trending news page updated around the clock with no ads. Plus, you'll receive two bonus newsletters. You'll have access to the terrific Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez and Ballot Access News. Just go to politicalwire.com, use the coupon code PROPOLITICS at checkout, or go directly to politicalwire.com slash propolitics to start your subscription. Thanks to Political Wire for sponsoring the ProPolitics podcast. And now, my conversation with the authors of This Will Not Pass. Alex Burns, Jonathan Martin. Does Donald Trump legitimately think he won the 2020 election, or is this mostly fanning the flames to avoid acknowledging the fact that he lost? Zach, first off, thanks for having us. This is our base, Zach. As an avid listener of this podcast, somebody who's passed a lot of hours on the road listening to the likes of Kaylee Barber, One Minute, and Loretta Sanchez, the next, I know that this is a a fun audience of of political junkies, so we're, we're thrilled to be on. Look, I think Trump does believe he won the election. I think Donald Trump has created conditions around him in in, in which he is rarely uh, willing to acknowledge difficult truths. He wants to be seen as a winner in all things. He embraces any and all stories that he has to, to see himself in that light. Look, all the reporting that we did over the course of you know two years for this book, and we did a lot of reporting, talking to a wide variety of sources. I don't recall, and Alex, correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't recall anybody saying, you know, Trump actually takes off the mask. He kind of knows he actually did lose. Uh, this is all just sort of a game for him. I mean, that never came up. Now, there's a lot of game playing among other Republicans, Zach, which we can talk about here as we get into the podcast in terms of the public versus private difference when it comes to how Republicans talk about Donald Trump. But as for Trump himself, no, I think he's bought in. And the only thing I would add to that, I think that, you know, when we were sort of reporting in semi real time about like how Trump processed his defeat in the election and wound up leading this crusade, uh, calling it a stolen election, I think it was very clear in real time that he was just looking for a way to not acknowledge that he had lost uh, the election, right? In the book, there's a scene uh, the weekend after the election where Chris Christie is talking to Donald Trump and urges him to uh, concede defeat. And Trump says, well, I'm not going to do that. So what else you got? You know, you don't have at that point a sort of sense of moral indignation on the part of Donald Trump that, you know, they're taking this thing away from me. I want it legitimately. That stuff uh, clearly develops as first, I think, 
mostly as a ploy, and then eventually, I think, clearly uh, becomes something that he believes more authentically. And who came closest to anticipating not just that Trump would try to cast doubts on the results and attempt to manipulate the results, but who came closest to anticipating, predicting the precise manner in which it would happen? A good loaded question, Zach, and it shows that you read the book. It is not the person that perhaps your listeners expected. It is Brian Schatz, the senator from Hawaii. There's this scene that we have in the book in which Schatz, who's a fairly low-key, um, you know, respected Democratic senator, someone who's not exactly a regular on the Sunday shows, but has good relationships on both sides of the aisle in Congress, Schatz is, is at a Senate Commerce Committee hearing in the fall of 2020, and he unfurls, like, basically chapter and verse precisely how the election is going to go and how the early results are going to be more favorable for Republicans and President Trump, and Trump will claim victory <laughs> And then as subsequent mail ballots come in and the tide turns blue, that Trump will then claim fraud and the claim that the election was stolen. And what's striking about that is that the chairman of the Commerce Committee, Roger Wicker from Mississippi, hears Schatz's prophetic comments in the fall and kind of dismisses them as, as the sort of um, worry-mongering of a uh, liberal colleague. But after the election <laughs> arrives and Trump does precisely what Schatz predicted, that, you know, Wicker says out loud, like, holy shit, he was right. He was right. And you talk a little bit about George W. Bush here, who has a real distaste for Donald Trump. You report that that's been out there for a while. And maybe these are just unrealistic expectations, but why haven't we heard more from the last Republican president before Trump to try to help yank the party back from the grips of the Trump faction? It's a really, really good question. And it's something that we, I think, would have liked to go into more depth on in the book. But what we have in there, just for starters, is around Election Day 2020, uh, George W. Bush recognizes that he is going to have some kind of role to play, potentially, in sorting out the outcome of a potentially likely contested election. He gathers his brain trust around him. And many of the same characters people will remember from uh, his presidency, folks like Karl Rove and uh, Josh Bolton, to sort of game out what could happen on election day and what he should do afterwards. And he's emphatic at that point. If Biden wins, which looked likely, then he was going to uh, quickly recognize him as the president-elect. And he does that. But yeah, you're right. He doesn't have a whole lot to say uh, subsequently about Trump's behavior. Fundraiser in the summer of 2021, he talks about the party needing to you know, embrace uh, truth tellers and new leaders, but that is a far cry from leading an effort to sort of purge his party uh, of Trump's influence. And look, I think a lot of it is people within the Republican establishment, including people as prominent as a former president, really wanting to have it both ways, where they sort of see themselves and present themselves to the world as standing up to Trump, being certainly better than Trump, more virtuous uh, than Trump themselves. But also, in the case of Bush, at least, this idea that you know his political days are behind him and he doesn't want to be a combatant uh, at this point. Basically, he doesn't want to have the sort of daily war with Donald Trump that his brother had during the 2016 primaries and afterwards. And it's a huge missed opportunity in the Republican Party that there's just simply nobody of that level of stature who's willing to keep up the drumbeat of uh, indignation and warning about what Trump represents. And also they talk themselves into the idea that you know, it wouldn't even help anyway, that it would just play into Donald Trump's hands. A lot of it, you know, I think it's very hard with these characters to find exactly where their authentic beliefs about the efficacy of their work a stop and where sort of a convenient self-justification starts. 
And you have a short vignette about one Republican senator, and it struck me that it might be one of the best microcosms of how the Republican establishment has interacted and in, in some cases, in most cases, failed and placated Donald Trump. I'm curious if you agree or not. And that is the vignette you have in the book about North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is a, a great, vivid example of the bargain that a lot of mainstream conservative Republicans made with Donald Trump. And there's no more sort of normie establishment Republican than Tom Tillis, who, of course, Speaker of the House in North Carolina, and is somebody who, I mean, like a lot of Republican senators in private, just had very little use for Donald Trump and his conduct. Tillis, I think, tries to show a little bit of distance with Trump. He's going into a competitive re-election in what is a hotly contested state in North Carolina in 2020. And Tillis writes this op-ed in the Washington Post breaking with Trump on using DOD dollars to build the wall on the Mexican border. It's not the policy break that so much angers Trump. It's just the fact that Tillis wouldn't be 100% loyal to whatever the Trump preference is. And so this just sticks with Trump and he never forgets it until us has to for months try to fix this from one damn op-ed. Tillis finally gets to a better place where he's placating Trump. But you're right, Zach, this is a great example of how much time and energy these Republican lawmakers spent in the Trump years sweating what the status of their relationship was with Trump. Can I speak out a little bit? What can I say? What can't I say? If I do or say this, will that get me into trouble? The constant calculation that these guys had up there, and frankly, one that hasn't totally changed. I mean, there's still that calculation. I point no further than Kevin McCarthy the last couple of weeks, which has obviously gotten a lot of attention from the book. This is still, it's front and center in their minds. What is Trump going to say? That's the question. Trump tested positive for COVID in late August 2020, spent three nights in Walter Reed. How sick was he? We don't break new ground on his physical condition, and or at least the severity of his physical condition uh, in the book. But what we do uh, report in the book is that when he was on stage uh, with Joe Biden at that debate, Biden's advisors were looking at Trump, red-faced, uh, sweating, clearly physically out of sorts, and uh, deeply concerned that they had put their candidate on stage with a COVID patient, which obviously turned out to be exactly what had happened. And, you know, not a revelation from our book, but uh, subsequently revealed that, you know, that Trump had tested positive before the debate and uh, went on stage anyway. Look, I think it's sort of wild uh, how quickly the memory of that uh, time politically has receded a little bit uh, because of subsequent events that throughout the 2020 campaign, uh, but particularly uh, with the approach of election day, there was just terror on the Democratic side, especially about Joe Biden's physical health in the middle of a pandemic. It shaped uh, the campaign's decisions about his travel. It's why we had months of the whole uh, Joe Biden in the basement experience. And then when he finally got out there, so many Democrats were just petrified that they were on track to win this election. But the biggest uh, question mark uh, was actually not, you know, what would Trump do or uh, what would be the sort of last minute October surprise? uh, But like, can we keep our own guy healthy? The second Trump impeachment, which in the House dealt with it January of 2021, in the Senate, I think it bled into February, in a secret ballot in the House and in the Senate, what share do you think the Republican caucus would have voted to impeach, (laughs) convict Trump for the events surrounding and immediately before and on January 6th? This is why the Zach podcast is so good. 
Look, I think you know the answer to that, Zach. That's why you're asking the question, man. Look, in the House, obviously, it would have been significantly more than 10 Republicans. <laughs> Speaking of the private versus the public posture when it comes to Donald Trump, yeah, look, I think there would have been easily over 10 in, in the Senate. Goodness gracious, there would certainly have been the votes there to, uh, to convict. But yeah, we know... And this is not just, by the way, from our speculation. This is for our reporting. We talked to a number of lawmakers, some of which were very public about their ambivalence. I'll just give you one because somebody who was on the record about it has been pretty open about it. And that's Don Bacon from Nebraska, who's got the Omaha area seat. You know, I think Bacon struggled with impeachment. He was appalled by uh, Trump's conduct. He saw how Trump was hurting the party in suburban America, districts like his. And I think somebody like that, it was a tough vote. You know, it was a, a tough, tough vote. And I think if they had the benefit of a private ballot, it certainly would have been higher. I'll just tell you this real quick. I spoke to a former senator fairly recently and I said to the senator, I said, if you took a, a survey of the 50 Republican senators, how many would want Donald Trump to be the standard bearer for the party in 24? The senator is shot back in a heartbeat, zero. And zero. it was a tough vote, or was it a tough vote for uh, Mitch McConnell? You spend some real depth and I think pretty compelling about the McConnell thought process during the second impeachment. He transitions from sort of this righteous anger immediately after January 6th, implying perhaps that he's open to impeachment. By the time the vote rolls around in early February, he votes against conviction. Is there any other way that that could have played out? Was there ever a realistic chance McConnell would have voted to convict? Look, I think there clearly was a window immediately after January 6th where Mitch McConnell was uh, open to voting for conviction and certainly open to encouraging his colleagues in the Senate to do so. Or, you know, by no means uh, did he ever entertain uh, seriously some effort to crack down uh, on efforts to uh, impeach Donald Trump. You know, you said he takes a tough vote or does he? And I think that's kind of a good way of framing that question, that he's ultimately sort of tortured about voting against convicting Donald Trump. But the vote he takes is the politically the easier vote for him to take. He decides that you know he doesn't want to a vote to convict Donald Trump and whip other Republicans to do so, and in so doing, launch a two-year all-out war with Donald Trump when he, Mitch McConnell, uh, is really focused on trying to retake the Republican Senate majority. And he, like so many other Republican senators, uh, ultimately hide behind this contested legal argument that you cannot convict a former president or, or any former official in an impeachment trial even though in this case, the impeachment was set in motion while Donald Trump was still the president. It's a really useful fig leaf that allows people, at least in the moment, uh, to try to make the case that, you know, they're not letting Trump off the hook. They're very clear in their public comments, as McConnell is on the Senate floor, uh, that they find his uh, behavior totally unacceptable. But, you know, unfortunately, my hands are tied here and it's not constitutionally appropriate for me to vote for conviction. Obviously, it ends up being the largest bipartisan Senate vote to convict a president ever. So most people uh, in the Senate, not persuaded by that argument. Look, I think what's difficult for McConnell is reconciling his immediate and medium term political interests with the way that he wants to be regarded as having operated in this moment in the eyes of history. He really wants to have that speech on the Senate floor denouncing Donald Trump a linger in the public mind. I think a year and change later, it's pretty questionable whether anyone particularly remembers that speech outside of people who are following this very, very intensively. McConnell has had very little to say more recently about Donald Trump in those terms. 
and maybe this is an easy question just simply for actuarial reasons, or maybe it's more complicated. Do you have an instinct on who will lead their caucus longer, Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell? <laughs> um, I think McConnell today is in the safer spot, Zach. Look, obviously, some of these primaries this year are so consequential, not just about Trump's grip on the party, but because of McConnell's grip on the Senate conference. And I think that's why races like in Ohio, J.D. Vance are, are consequential. I don't think McConnell's in any trouble today, tomorrow, and probably not even in January of 23 when the new Congress comes in. But clearly there is a shift in the party. The party's becoming less like Mitch McConnell and more like Donald Trump. That's most vivid in the House, to be sure. Eventually, it's going to work its way to the Senate. I think McConnell today I think is well-positioned, but obviously, in the longer term, it, it's more of an open question. McCarthy's a harder question to answer, right? Because it's so dependent upon Trump's whims. If, for whatever reason, Trump turns on McCarthy, or if Trump just kind of goes quiet on McCarthy, it could complicate McCarthy's math with that far-right element of the House GOP conference. And then there's just the fact of, of just stewardship of the conference and what that's like with a Democratic president. Kevin McCarthy doesn't know what it's like to be in leadership when you've got a Democratic president in any serious way. And so I think this is going to be a new challenge for him. The good news for Kevin McCarthy is that if this year goes like it appears it's going to right now, he will have a number of freshman Republicans in the House who have some degree of loyalty to him, given the money he's raising for them and the effort he's putting in for the majority. And you float the possibility toward the end of the book, put it in my own words, that McCarthy has so damaged his credibility and reputation with how he handled January 6th and the relationship with Trump, that even if Republicans take the House majority in 2022, there could be some avenue that a share of the Democratic caucus works with some House Republicans to deny yeah. the speakership to McCarthy in favor of a different Republican who'd likely be just as conservative as McCarthy, but doesn't have the stains of January 6th. Can you expound on that possibility? Well, Zach, this is something that you would certainly know happens from time to time in the states when the uh, balance of power in a legislative body is really, really narrow and the minority party decides that they would rather uh, vote for a sort of mainstream pragmatist in the other party than do the sort of traditional thing you do as the minority party, which is vote for one of your own people and know full well that they are going to lose. Uh, and then the other side just chooses whoever they want. I think this is a scenario that only really comes into play if the House margin is very, very, very narrow uh, indeed. If Republicans have you know, even a 10-vote majority, I think it's really hard to see sufficient number of Republicans joining with Democrats to elect, let's just say hypothetically, Speaker Liz Cheney. What I think is a more uh, realistic possibility is that McCarthy has damaged his credibility so uh, severely across the board that if you end up with a meaningful majority, not like a two-seat majority, but not a landslide majority either, that he ends up getting really squeezed both from the a hard right and from the middle of his conference. And people uh, just decide, you know, this guy uh, happens to be uh, kind of in the right place at the right time. He's an effective fundraiser, but uh, he's just fundamentally not up to the job of Speaker of the House. And that's when I think things could potentially get a much, much more complicated. The very fact that Democrats are having that conversation, though, about whether they would lend their votes to a conservative Republican for Speaker in order to stop this one guy uh, from getting the job, I think does speak to the degree to which McCarthy is seen as, a among Republican leaders, a uniquely poisonous figure in the House. 
Can you give me two or three names that you think, if, if somehow Republicans are in the majority a year from now and the speaker is not Kevin McCarthy, who are the members that you think would be the most likely to be in the mix? Sure. I think, look, the most obvious backup plan would be Steve Scalise, who's the current number two from Louisiana, somebody who similarly pro-Trump, conservative, has good relationships in the House and sort of could be uh, an alternative if McCarthy, for, for whatever reason, is not available. I think there, there's two other possibilities that would come to mind. One is more of a sort of Freedom Caucus far right figure, somebody like Jim Jordan, who could potentially pick up the banner of the sort of most Trumpist faction of the House GOP conference. And then the last name I'll give you, somebody who gets a lot of chatter in D.C., who was previously in the House Republican leadership and somebody who, none other than John Boehner himself, former speaker, believes could be a future speaker, and that's Patrick McHenry from North Carolina. But notably, McHenry in recent weeks, Zach, has said that he is going to seek the chairmanship of the House Financial Services Committee if the Republicans take back the House next year, a sort of not-so-subtle way of of signaling, uh, yeah, you guys figure out the sort of 2023 stuff with Trump still hanging over the party, and I'll I'll sort of uh, have my committee gavel over here and raise a lot of money from financial institutions and maybe see where things are in 2025. That, to me, says he's going to sort of keep his head down here for, for a little while. And can you give the conventional wisdom handicap of what you would expect the race to succeed Nancy Pelosi as a Democratic leader to look like, whether that's a year from now or a decade from now? What are you looking at in terms of how that process comes together? It's interesting because I think Democrats have this, your average Democratic voter, I think, has the sense of their party as this sort of totally unruly and fractious organization. And as we show in the book, in many respects, it is. But when it comes to the sort of leadership uh, tier of the Democratic Party and questions of hierarchy and succession, it's actually a party that loathes sort of disruption and conflict. So I think the betting odds in Washington right now are that, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, the House Democratic Caucus chair, a prominent member of the Congressional Black Caucus, would be the natural person to step into the speakership. But there are other people who are very interested in leadership, including perhaps the job of speaker. Uh, Catherine Clark from Massachusetts, a very prominent House progressive, and also figures like Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus. And the question is less, are these people going to sort of go reservoir dogs on each other and see who is the last person standing and that person becomes the speaker? And more can they play the right game of musical chairs to find everybody a slot in the top four to six leadership jobs in the House so that Democrats can avoid that sort of messiness that they uh, don't care for? Obviously, what Pelosi herself uh, ends up doing uh, is going to be really consequential in terms of whether she uh, does uh, seek to stay as leader or speaker after the midterm elections, and also whether she tries to give a leg up to anybody in particular. As you know, she's a great, great fan of her fellow Californian, Adam Schiff. Uh, he's been interested in leadership from time to time. So I don't want to do sort of go too far here in suggesting that it's a lock for Jeffries or anyone else. But I do think, you know, you ask for conventional wisdom, and I think that's kind of where it is. And you cover the Biden VP process very thoroughly, and it's a, a great part of the book. But just logistically, the references of how exhausting it is, what can you share about the nuts and bolts of that process? Can you demystify what someone had to go through in that process? Yeah. So look, I think Biden was fairly open at the start of this process. He and his staff approached this from a fairly almost a clinical approach. They wanted somebody who was going to ensure Donald Trump's defeat. They were not thinking, I don't think, fairly deeply beyond that. 
Obviously, he made the choice to narrow his prospects to just women, which, of course, winnowed the field considerably. But as we get into in the book, there were a lot of people, Zach, in his orbit who I think were, were very active in trying to present him with um, why Governor Whitmer from Michigan made a lot of sense. And I think, you know, she was a very tempting choice for Joe Biden. You know, Midwestern governor or a state you got to have, almost certainly if you're a Democrat. Look, I, th- I think Biden had a good feeling for Kamala Harris, in part because of something that you hear about a lot, but it's true. Anybody who has a connection with Bo Biden has got an advantage when it comes to Joe Biden. And I think because Kamala Harris and Bo Biden were fellow AGs, I think that that actually helped her considerably. And just how grueling was the process themselves, irrespective of who he chose and who was going through it? What, what upheaval in one's life do you have to go through to put yourself forward and go through a vetting process to be vice president? Well, it's pretty extraordinary. I'm uh, looking for the page in the book, uh, make sure that I name the correct medical procedure. You know, the people who were subjected to the vetting turn over enormous amount of personal uh, financial information. It's not just uh, they who are interviewed by the vetting committee. They are their family uh, members are interviewed, people who are, yes, okay, it was uh, in fact a colonoscopy. Uh, you know, this is sort of like a cliche of the uh, vice presidential uh, vetting process that you say it's it's sort of a, the political version of a colonoscopy. Uh, and uh, Tammy Duckworth, in fact, did turn over the results of a, an actual colonoscopy. Literally, and- folks. To the vetting team, uh, I am not being facetious. Uh, <laughs> that I turned that over because health is such an issue, and particularly health is always an issue for the vice president. But I think even more so in a situation where the president is of such an advanced age. Yeah, we're talking about a super invasive process here, and it's also, by the way, why when people go through the process uh, and they don't wind up getting picked, there are often some pretty significant hard feelings about that. Not only because they wanted to be vice president, but because, like, my God, I've, I've opened up my life to you in every possible way, and you picked somebody else for the job. During Trump's first term, this would float every now and then, and it felt a little bit more like clickbait. Was there ever a moment you think it was on the table in a real way that Trump was going to look at somebody else other than Pence for re-election? We, I don't think we ever heard any indication in our reporting that that was a serious thing. I mean, you know, Trump sort of floats a lot of stuff and people around Trump uh, float a lot of stuff. And I think particularly people in his family and his sort of like more apolitical entourage, you know, who might not grasp the gravity of firing your vice president when you're running for re-election. We certainly heard chatter about that. Never anything that indicated Mike Pence was really in serious danger. Although I will say, Zach, the Pence people were ever vigilant about that chatter. I recall in 2020 when Governor Christie Noem of South Dakota memorably gave Trump a replica of Mount Rushmore with Trump on on the side of the mountain, a sort of new addition to the memorial. She also caught a ride back to D.C. with not much advanced planning on Air Force One with Trump. That definitely got the Pence world's attention. I think they were always on guard for the kind of people that Alex is talking about, the Trump retainers and family members who were, I think, more open to this than Trump himself. And you talk about both Republican entreaties to coax Senators Manchin and Senator to switch parties, the way I read them, not terribly close to succeeding there. But let me ask about Manchin specifically. Of course, part of it, I imagine, is that in this Congress, at least, he's one of the one or two most influential senators in a body that's 50-50, aligning himself with Republicans. He'd cede a lot of power if Mitch McConnell is majority leader. But above and beyond that, you also talk about the importance he places on identifying as a Democrat. Can you flesh that out for me a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that is sort of lost in the sort of Twitter caricature of Joe Manchin as this, uh, like, essentially Dixiecrat uh, character, which he really is not, right? He's a, he is a solidly centrist and on some issues, a center-right figure, but like well within the historical mainstream, you know, sort of moderate uh, democratic politics. And, you know, we have him in the book, you know, calling up people he's close to and saying, like, don't these people realize, these people meaning the left, like, don't these people realize I'm a real damn Democrat? Proud Italian Catholic Kennedy style Democrat is how he sees himself. Look, if Joe Manchin wanted to switch parties, the red carpet is waiting for him anytime. Easy re-election is probably waiting for him at any time. Although one of the things that we report in our book is that uh, Manchin has told people that, look, Trump's going to come after me, whether I have an R next to my name or a D next to my name, that yes, it'd be easier to win re-election as a Republican in West Virginia, but I voted to uh, convict this guy in two different impeachment trials, and he's not going to forget that. Let me throw some other names at you of people who aren't necessarily household names to the general public, but are certainly known quantities to this audience and caught my eye in your book. Maybe you can give me a little explanation of why they warranted mention in This Will Not Pass. What about Republican Congressman from Ohio, Bill Johnson? Oh man, Zach, this is this is deep on side <laughs> two of the record. Uh, I appreciate you. <laughs> so Bill Johnson has, I think, what was at least a good chunk of the old district in Ohio was once held by Ted Strickland, uh, Ted Strickland the pride yeah. of Duck Run. Exactly. He's got that Appalachian district backbencher, not well known, but he has this really important walk-on role. In our book, it's after January 6th, and there's this conference-wide GOP conference call in which they're talking about Trump. What do we do? What are the options here? You know, a lot of people in the conference believe Trump should face some accountability. Some are even talking about pushing him to resign. Bill Johnson speaks up and says, you know, in my district, people want to know about Hunter Biden and Hillary Clinton and how we're going to hold them accountable and says our base, in effect, does not want to hear it. And that was an eye opening moment, I think, when Alex and I got that reporting, because it really captured what a lot of Republicans, including Kevin McCarthy, would eventually contend with, which is. Their voters just don't care about what Trump does and says. They like him and nothing he can do, no no norms that he can break are going to change that. Just the opposite. They want to you know what their lawmakers are going to do to hold the other side accountable because what they're consuming in their media diets, whether it's Fox or Facebook, is almost entirely about Hunter Biden and Hillary Clinton. And I think what Johnson's comments in that moment, our folks don't want to hear it, it really capture so much of why the Republican Party came back to the, uh, Donald Trump's open embrace. And Zach, I would just add to that, in the same comment that Jonathan just described, Johnson says something, and I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the effect of like, I'm not saying this is how it should be, but this is how it is. This is what our people want to hear. That, you know, it's revealing on that level too, right? That this guy's not actually speaking up as, I mean, he's a very pro-Trump figure generally, but he's not speaking up and saying, Kevin, I personally am just so fired up about Hunter Biden and why aren't we talking about him? He's saying, look, this is what the folks back home want, whether we like it or not. He says, I'm not saying he, as in Trump, didn't do anything wrong. Don't get me wrong on that at all, because I do think he could have handled it very, very differently, and accountability is certainly in order. But then he goes on to say, the 74-plus million people that voted for him, including over 250,000 in my district, to suggest that there's some accountability to be shared here, man, 
they go ballistic right away. And they say, where in the hell is the accountability starting with Hillary Clinton? A Democratic official who I was familiar with, but felt like I had a much better read on in your book, and that is New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. We felt like the whole country was going through this moment of extended political crisis, and that if we told it through just through the White House and Congress, that'd be insufficient. And Michelle Lujan Grisham is a sort of interesting character on a couple levels. She did serve in the House of Representatives. She was the chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus before going home to New Mexico to run for governor. She's a person with a public health background. So during COVID, you know, is one of the sort of most vocal a Democratic governors and talking about how Trump is wrong. And uh, there's another way to sort of manage lockdowns and other restrictions in the early months of COVID. And she's also uh, like a pretty plain spoken, no bullshit character. So she's pretty honest in the book about some moments when I think other kinds of people, including other impressive governors, would be much more guarded uh, in how uh, they talk about their experience. And so she's interviewed for the vice presidency. Uh, She submits her vetting documents uh, like everybody else. When Joe Biden goes to talk to her about why she wants to be vice president, and he says, well, why do you want the job? And her response is, like, actually, you asked me to apply for this job. I didn't ask for this, all right, that she likes being governor. I think she would have liked to be vice president, too. There's ultimately a sort of irreconcilable differences over what her aspirations are and their interests in her. And what she uh, told us in the book was, listen, like, if these people wanted a cabinet secretary who was going to be subordinate to super staffers in the West Wing. Like if they want a health secretary who's going to be uh, an underling for uh, Jeff Zients, that's what I'm sort of reading into her words. Those aren't literally uh, what she said. But if they want an HHS secretary who's going to report to staff, then, you know, maybe that's not me. It's a refreshing uh, uh, sort of kind of candor uh, in the book. And I think it also sort of lays bare the reservations that some Democrats outside Washington uh, had during the transition about going into the Biden orbit, knowing how tightly knit the president's team is, and knowing how much he relies on these uh, super staffers who are actually not Senate confirmed uh, people, but operate much closer to the president. Zach, your listeners will appreciate this. Like, She's the classic governor who, having served in D.C., she gets the deal. She knows that a lot of this work is done by White House aides, some of which are like close to half her age. And it's just not in any hurry to take a job for the name of the job on paper when she knows the reality of the job uh, is going to cause her frustration. I'll also just, just add, this was an interview that actually took us to the governor's mansion in Santa Fe, which is a spectacular spot, very New Mexico architecture. You can just sort of see how happy she is to discourse. For a reporter, she's the kind of politician that we enjoy talking to because very little in the way of inhibitions happen to speak her mind, even as her staffer in the corner is sort of edging closer and closer to the edge of the couch as she as she speaks about uh, all manner uh, all manner of things. And another name that it comes up only once, but it struck me as sort of a telling detail, and that is former Republican governor of Tennessee, Bill Haslam. Yeah. So Governor Haslam is somebody who I think in an earlier era would have been a logical GOP Senate recruit. Uh, he's somebody that Mitch McConnell had targeted twice. First, when Bob Corker chose to preemptively end his career and stop getting into online wars with Donald Trump. And then again, I came back to him to woo uh, Haslam when Lamar Alexander decided to retire. And, you know, if you just think about Haslam, uh, Alexander, and, uh, and Corker, that's sort of the classic East Tennessee center-right Republican 
uh, model that I think people are pretty familiar with. And that's why I think McConnell was so attracted to it. You know, McConnell, of course, came into the Senate when Howard Baker was still in the Senate. And I think that's McConnell's kind of senator. And the fact is, Haslam said no twice. And the fact that Haslam said no to McConnell twice about running for the Senate tells you everything about where this old guard of the Republican Party sees their party going and sees where the Senate is headed. And I, Haslam was very candid with us about his view of Donald Trump and what Donald Trump had done to American politics and clearly wanted no part of that culture. And another name, a Republican member who I knew the name but wasn't terribly familiar with, but I think comes across with a, a level of strength and independence that um, is unusual is Arkansas Republican Congressman Steve Womack. I'm going to leave this one to Jonathan because I know it's technically my turn in the ping pong, but this is like Jonathan loves that episode in the book more than just about anything else we got. <laughs> the reason, Zach, is because the beauty of reporting and certainly of reporting a book, and this is our first one, is like finding people or scoops or elements that you just didn't think you would come across. Surprises. And that's sort of the spice of life, right? If you had asked Alex and I as we got this book uh, off the ground. Hey guys, like, do you think that Steve Womack uh, will appear in your book, like putting a knife in Kevin McCarthy? We would have said, no, probably not. <laughs> that, that seems unlikely. But uh, life is full of surprises. And we interviewed Steve Womack. We had gotten a tip, had a long conversation with Steve Womack. And it turns out that Steve Womack is completely appalled by how Kevin McCarthy handled January 6th. And specifically, not just what Trump did on the sex, but what Mo Brooks, the Alabama congressman, did on the morning of the sex. When, of course, Brooks at the ellipse said to the uh, soon-to-be rioters, go up to the Capitol and kick some ass. Womack, who's this conservative military man from northwest Arkansas, he's not a boat rocker, cannot believe Brooks has done this. And Womack goes to McCarthy and pushes McCarthy to strip Brooks of his committees. And Womack has the ability to do this in part because Womack serves on what's called the steering committee. And the real junkies out there in your audience will know the House Steering Committee of the Republican Party decides who serves on what committees. And so Womack pushes McCarthy to strip Brooks of his committees. Long story short, McCarthy first buys some time and then flatly refuses to punish Brooks. And Womack says, enough of this, writes a letter to McCarthy quitting the steering committee in disgust. And to this day, deeply unsettled about McCarthy's lack of leadership. It just goes to show you never know what you're going to stumble across. The great writer Robert Caro says, turn every page. And I think the Steve Womack line of reporting is a great testament to not just turning every page, but pursuing every tip. And what's something important that's happened since you went to publication that would have fit really well and really neatly within the narrative that your book tells? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, this is kind of meta, but Kevin McCarthy's response to the audio tapes. <laughs> Does that count, Zach? Uh, shameless, uh, shameless plug. Alex, what else? We're obviously not experts on national security or foreign affairs or Ukraine and Russia. I do think that the so much of what we show in the book is how basically like no matter what the inputs are from government, America's political boundaries are so bitterly and rigidly affixed and they've resisted disruption from a pandemic and disruption from a new president and his new policies. And I think the degree to which I think a couple months ago when war broke out in Eastern Europe, we were sort of wondering like, will the narrative from our book even 
still seem relevant in May. And I think it's a testament to the underlying sort of divisions of the country that no, like the worst global war in more than a decade has not has not moved the political boundaries that we're not sitting here thinking, God, well, you know, we're looking at Joe Biden and the country's really rewarding him for his steady leadership in Ukraine. Like there's no evidence that anything like that's happening. In the process of this, there must have been something that you two didn't quite see eye to eye on, even if small. What's something that comes to mind? I think you know, I want to do half the book on the Steve Womack affair. And I, you, know, you, know, you know, Alex said, can we compromise and just, you know, make it a quarter? No. Um, here's the thing about the two of us. We have a mind meld that is pretty strong and there's not a lot of deviation um, when it comes to, I think, our judgment on material. I mean, at the margins, but I think like, on the big themes of the two parties and the actors in the two parties, I think we're basically on the same page. Part of the reason why we did this book together is because we, since we became colleagues at Politico in 2008, we sort of had this ongoing dialogue about American politics, and we have pretty strong views about politics and journalism both. And uh, this was so fun, Zach, because it was a chance for us to sort of capture so much of that conversation that we've had the last 15 years and sort of put it down on paper with a lot of reporting behind it. In the acknowledgments, you mentioned maybe more, but at least two colleagues, uh, Sasha Eisenberg and Maggie Haberman. Why is that? Well, two of our closest friends, and both of them are just extraordinary political journalists in different ways. Um, Sasha, you know, the author of a couple different books on politics now, but most recently a book called The Engagement, History of the uh, movement for gay marriage in America. Anybody who's interested in uh, the way politics and large-scale social change really uh, happen has just got to read this book. It's a history of the modern civil rights movement that happened with sort of lightning speed and his sort of breadth and depth of his reporting and the sort of large arc of the narrative. It's just an extraordinary achievement. Maggie is like one of the most uh, generous and enthusiastic colleagues you could ever have the good fortune uh, to have. She has her own book coming out in just a couple months called Confidence Man uh, about Donald Trump's rise uh, to the presidency. I can't claim to have read that one, but I will uh, strongly, strongly recommend it. Plan to read it as soon as possible. But long-term professional companions and personal allies and sounding boards and sort of cheering sections in some cases, like for as long as I can remember. And we've just had a sort of like long-running conversation, Zach, with them about so much uh, involving politics, journalism, and, and life in general. So they're really special friends. I'm a graduate of the University of Alabama. What is the connection? I know a little bit of it, but connection between the University of Alabama and the New York Times. Can you give me a minute or two on that? So the obvious connections between Alabama and the Times are... Uh, Gay Talese went to undergrad there. He grew up in Jersey. It's sort of a fascinating story for how Gay Talese wound up at Bama in the 50s, but he did. Obviously, Rick Bragg, he went to Bama, but obviously grew up in Alabama. And then, of course, most famously, Hal Raines, who's a big Bama fan. But I think generally, Zach, there's always been a Southern influence at the times. The family itself had roots in Tennessee, the Ox family at least. That's been a sort of enduring fact that the New York Times, uh, Turner Catledge, the current editor, Dean Bacay, is from New Orleans. It's always had that tie to the South. And it's had a lot of lyrical writers from the South. I think one of our favorite colleagues, Campbell Robertson, also from Alabama, I think is one of the best writers at the paper, somebody who grew up in Alabama and still, for some reason, cheers for the Crimson Tide. 
Well, let's end with a recommendation from both of you without mentioning something by Richard Ben Kramer or Robert Caro or Sasha Eisenberg. What is a book within this same genre or adjacent that maybe has some overlap, a book within the same genre as This Will Not Pass? What's a book you'd recommend people to hunt down and find? You just like knocked out my entire go-to list. Two books, one that I just read that I really liked a lot, a book about Harry Truman by an author named Jeffrey Frank, who was formerly a novelist, but he's turned to nonfiction. He wrote a book about the Eisenhower and Nixon White House uh, called Ike and Dick, the chronicle of the really stilted relationship between President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon. His current book is all about Truman's presidency, and it's so vivid. He has a gift for selecting anecdotes and vignettes that just jump off the page that are fantastic. And the other book I often tell people who either work in journalism or or politics to pick up because it's just so raw and candid, and Alex is going to laugh here, and that is Bob Novak's memoir, Prince of Darkness. There's a lot in there that captures in ways that are borderline cynical, but certainly honest, some of the calculations involved in politics and journalism. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to sort of defy your admonition here to not name Kara or Richard Ben Kramer and just name a specific uh, Kara book that isn't uh, the power broker or a master of the Senate and really recommend uh, Means of Ascent. It's the second of the Lyndon Johnson books. Uh, It's, I think, the shortest of the Lyndon Johnson books. You know, so much of the uh, sort of Kara body of work on Johnson and uh, on Robert Moses in New York is about the inner works of government. And what I think is sort of less recognized is that book, which is just, it's an extraordinary campaign book about the the advent of a modern mass media traveling by helicopter campaign over a really big state. One of the things that we tried to do in this book is to break out of the genre of sort of campaign book, narrowly defined. It begins with a candidate's announcing uh, and ends on election day and sort of bridge the, you know, bust through the boundaries between campaign books narrowly understood and books about government. And so again, means of ascent with apologies for uh, defying your instruction here. That is great. The book is This Will Not Pass, a must read to understand the politics we've all lived through for the last few years with many great asides of which we've barely scratched the surface on in this conversation that are especially interesting for political junkies. The authors, Alex Burns, Jonathan Martin, Jonathan Alex, thanks for making time for me today. Thanks Thanks for having us, Zach. And I think this is going to be the only interview that touched on Bill Johnson and Michelle Lujan Grisham. So God love you, man. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.